You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. The downfall of American manufacturing is something we're intimately aware of here in southeast Michigan. We have had many conversations about how and why the industry has just not been able to hold on here and has moved elsewhere. But the travails that we've faced here have not troubled another country well-known for its manufacturing. NPR correspondent John Idsti recently filed a series of stories from Germany comparing that company's experiences with manufacturing here in America. He talks about some lessons that maybe we could learn from our German counterparts. John Idsti joins us now to talk about that work. John, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, Stephen. Really nice to be here. Yes, it's great to hear uh, from you. Uh, I, I listened yesterday to to all three of uh, your reports again uh, from from Germany, and I, I think it's a it's a really comprehensive look at um, <clears throat> at these differences at how a country that has uh, historically been s- almost as reliant on manufacturing as as we have has navigated the, the the sort of change of the last 20 or 30 years in a really really different way uh, the, the the one thing that stood out more to me than, than than anything else is this sort of idea of the family run business and the way in which uh, it has helped strengthen german manufacturing uh, in a way that we haven't seen here in the United States. So let's let's start there. Why why are family-run uh, businesses uh, helping make the picture look better in Germany? Well, you know, I think um, there's a long tradition of these family-run businesses in Germany, uh, going back uh, to the late 1800s, and uh, they have a name for them. Actually, they're called the Mittelstand. Uh, and and uh, Germany views them as the core of its manufacturing strength. Uh, these are small to medium-sized family-owned businesses, um, uh, uh, which have been in the family for some time. You'll remember I, I talked to uh, uh, von Schmittenberg, um, a uh, woman who's running an auto parts uh, business, uh, manufacturing business in Wuppertal, mm-hmm. Germany, it's been in the family since 1932, survived World War uh, uh, II, uh, made the first weld nut for the, uh, for the VW Beetle. Right, uh, right. These weld nuts are, the, <laughs> the, are these simple-looking things that they um, uh, focus on and do very well. We can talk a little bit more about that later. But I think the first thing about these businesses is they're small to medium-sized, family-owned and they have a long-term view. Um, they're not uh, a slave to quarterly profits and shareholders. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. can make decisions that might cost them a lot of money over a few years and still be the right decision to make uh, for the company to survive. And and uh, Von Schmittenberg said, you know, we have sort of a dynastic view. We want these, it's more than just uh, making a living uh, making a profit. It's about continuing this thing that her grandfather and grandmother started back in um, in 1932. She says her, her grandfather had the technological know-how and her grandmother had the money. So it, it was a dream team. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so I think that long-term family view is really important. And the other thing is this narrow focus, uh, a narrow focus on a 
product. And in the case of Schmittenberg, it was these weld nuts. And these are very small, simple-looking parts. They're about the size of a silver dollar, sometimes shaped a little differently. And they have a little tube uh, protruding that's, that is uh, threaded. And they're used, you, you weld them to the body of the car, and then, then you bolt down your seat belt or your seat mm-hmm. or, or some of your suspension items. And, um, you know, they look extremely simple. And I, I actually challenged uh, Yvonne Schmittenberg and her colleague, uh, Christian Reeder, about this. I said, how, how can you produce these in Germany, a high-wage area, when they look so simple and they uh, w- w- would, uh, you know, likely be made in a low-wage country. Right. Well, Mr. Reeder said, well, look, uh, they're simple looking, but they are highly engineered. He said, you could weld this weld nut to a steel girder and suspend four S-class Mercedes automobiles on it, and the thread would not strip. The wow. part would not fail. So this notion of focusing on doing one thing really well, very high quality, I think uh, that's uh, another important thing about these small family companies. And, you know, there are certainly companies like that in the United States right now. There's no doubt about it. I've I've visited with some of them. But, um, you know, I think we saw a a lot of those companies uh, go away as we started to look for cheap labor, yeah, and that yeah. was the goal. Yeah, um, uh, one of the one of the things that uh, also stands out in your reporting is the difference in the size between the uh, the the manufacturing, the the share of the economy that's manufacturing in Germany and here, twenty four percent there, eleven percent here. That that is one of the changes that we've seen. Correct uh, is that as we have lost, they have maintained uh, that that share. That's right. Uh, well, they have, they've also lost, uh, as a share of their economy, manufacturing has come down, but it's come down much uh, further in the United States. Yeah. And the other, I think, interesting data point is that the share of employment in manufacturing is about 17% in Germany, 9% in the United States. So there's a big difference in how automated our factories are as well. Uh, they have a lot more um, um, skilled labor at work. We have, I think, more automation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is John Edstey. He's a correspondent and host with NPR. He covers the economy. We are talking about a series of stories he's done about German manufacturing, German manufacturing and the strength of German manufacturing uh, in comparison to what we've seen here in the United States. Think about how many jobs we have lost here in southeast Michigan uh, because of the declines in domestic manufacturing in the United States. Uh, That decline has looked very different in Germany for a number of reasons. Uh, If you want to call and join the conversation, uh, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Uh, Call and tell us what you think we ought to be doing to reverse the fortunes of manufacturing here in the United States, especially here in Southeast Michigan, where we are so, so dependent on manufacturing jobs. Are there things we ought to be learning from other countries? Uh, You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put your comments there. If you go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, John, w- one of the other differences uh, you point up uh, I- in your reports is something else that we have talked a lot about in this country and here in Southeast Michigan. It's this idea of 
uh, grooming and growing talent uh, to be focused on manufacturing. And there is this uh, this sort of apprenticeship system in Germany that looks really different than what we do here. Right, yeah. There's an apprenticeship system. Germany has a dual system. They have a university system where you can go to university and get a degree. They also have this apprenticeship route where you go to work for a company and you go to school. So you work for three and a half days uh, learning a skill, learning a a trade, uh, and then you go to school for a day and a half, same week, and learn the theory behind what you're uh, doing you know, on the job. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a very big deal in Germany. Um, I, I'm not sure about this number, but I think about half of young, let, let's, uh, there, here's a number I'm sure of. About half a million young people enter this apprenticeship, uh, these apprenticeship programs uh, every year in wow. Germany. Wow. Uh, and at any given time, there's a million and a half young people working in these, uh, uh, learning and working at the same time in apprenticeship programs. And they, they range from, they're not all manufacturing. Um, uh, one of the people I talked to uh, who runs a small manufacturing um, uh, company called uh, Hebmuller Aerospace, they make valves for uh, aircraft lavatories and galleys. Again, a very narrowly focused small company that's mm-hmm. doing very well. This guy had gone, uh, had apprenticed in a bank and got his economy degree in a bank. Uh, as an apprentice. He later went to university as well, but he said, you know, only three of the, uh, the 16 people in this small company that he has had had gone to university. And what you have uh, in manufacturing specifically is a very steady stream of high-skilled workers. Mm-hmm. And this is something, as you well know, uh, U.S. manufacturers complain about all the time, yes. yeah. a skills gap. We can't find workers with the skills we want. Well, one answer is, why don't you train them? <laughs> and, you know, the problem uh, is, I think, in U.S. manufacturing uh, is that, uh, you know, uh, the the owners of the management of these companies sees this as a cost. Right. And, uh, and not an investment. Not necessarily an investment. And they're worried that if they train this worker, you know, someone will off- offer them a 50 to, uh, cents an hour more down the street and they'll lose the worker. And, you know, I think, um, you know, it's well established in Germany. I think in most cases, apprenticeships that apprentices who apprentice with a company, are they're there for three years before they finish. Wow. So they're very well integrated into the company. And most of them stay with the company that they apprentice with. Yeah. So there, there's not that concern. And then uh, we were talking about this cost. Uh, I was with some of the academics who uh, study uh, these things in Germany. And uh, they said, you know, th- th- when you think about the work, th- th- what happens is the apprentice is paid a very low wage step stipend in the first year, a little bit more in the second year, more in the third year. But by the second year, they're doing very high-level work that's very valuable for the company. So it may look like they're paying, the company's paying like $80,000 or so, or a euro for a, um, to train an apprentice, but the net cost really gets to be about around $10,000, essentially. And so at the end of it, you've got a very highly skilled worker, probably worth the investment. Yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's go to Mary in Detroit. Mary, welcome to Detroit today. Hi, I just wanted to make the comment that um, 
during the Bush administration, during that recession era, a lot of small business were complaining about uh, how they were struggling, but they were told that, you know, only the strongest and the fittest would survive. So a lot of those family-owned and small business went away. And that's and we see that repeating itself. We saw it with the textile industry. We saw it with the farming industry. But sometimes we, uh, those that are making the decisions don't take look at the, the long-term effect of what they do and what policies they put in place. Yeah. Thank you. Mary, thanks very much for the call and the comments. You know, John, one of the things that I, uh, one of the things that she said I think that, that jumps out is this idea that the the decline of family-owned businesses is not just uh, sort of cabin to uh, manufacturing. Uh, if you think about farming, which she brought up, uh, the, the, the family farm has really struggled in this country. Uh, lots of other sectors where we've seen that. And, and that sort of points up that this is kind of a cultural problem or maybe difference uh, between this country and, and some others that uh, maybe have hung on to those things uh, a little better than we have. You know, I think I think that's true. I mean, to some extent, we're uh, we um, we do look for profit in the short term often. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do look for low cost labor as opposed to investing in labor. Um, but I also think that there there's a broader kind of view in Germany when you look back at the way they structured their economy after World War II. It was basically a decision to you know manufacture and export. And, and they built a system of finance, labor relations, and, and other institutions that really uh, were in support of that. And even during the uh, mo- most recent financial crisis, uh, you may recall that uh, German companies did not lay off workers at right. the rate that U.S. companies did. They cut back hours, and everyone took a hit, but... The German manufacturers particularly, other companies as well, said, we value our labor and we're going to try to stick with this so we can make it through this uh, recession. Yeah. And as our the caller suggested, there were a lot of American companies did didn't make it through that recession, a lot of Americans who lost their job. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine. John, I, I want to quickly get you to talk about that export uh, component of the difference between American and German manufacturing. You mentioned it there, but that was that was the other prong of your reporting from from there is that uh, they maintain this incredible trade surplus, and that's just something we haven't done here. Yeah. Well, you know, Germany is. Um, uh, Again, right back after the first, uh, Second World War, the idea was there's no, we don't have much money here. <laughs> we're going to have to export if we're going to bring uh, wealth back to the country. And so they set themselves up to do that. Um, they also, you know, it's a smaller economy. So even these small companies have to look outside the border for uh, customers. And in the U.S., um, as one of the uh, people I talked to here, Martin Bailey, who's a economist over at the Brookings Institution said, you know, American companies look around and say, oh, yeah, exports. Uh, why would we do that? We've got this huge domestic market. So I think partly it's a necessity for Germany to export. Um, the other thing is they have, in, in most recent years, they have benefited from China's rise because they have provided the products for machines for the factories mm-hmm. that China was building. Their, you know, 
their real advantage in manufacturing is these uh, precision machine tools that you ship off to other factories that you know, make make the things that China produces. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. they they made lots of uh, they've made lots of money exporting to China, um, and uh, we've made less money. We've yeah. made lots of money buying the things. That, all right, we've yeah. spent <laughs> lots of money buying the things that China has made. Yeah. So yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think uh, you know they obviously have an export orientation and advantage to. The other part of it is um, there's this uh, macro accounting relationship between budget deficits and trade deficits. Right, right. And the U.S. has a big budget deficits, and therefore we have huge trade deficits. Uh, the Germans save more. Uh, at the government level, they balance their budgets or have surpluses, and Germans personally tend to save more than Americans do. So we have this. Um, if you don't get that right, it's very hard to uh, sure. not have a uh, budget uh, or, or a trade deficit. A trade deficit, sure. Let's take one more call here before we uh, end the segment. Eric in Bloomfield Hills, welcome to Detroit today. Hello. Hey, go ahead, Eric. Hey, I, I just had a quick question. Uh, we've been talking about a lot about the free will of these companies to be able to cut back hours when the economy changes and so forth. And I was just wondering how uh, unions function in Germany, and I can take my answer offline. Yeah, no, thanks very much for the call, Eric. That, that's a great uh, that's a great question, uh, John. Is uh, does that also feed into these differences? Our our organized labor. History and culture here. Right. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Well, labor has a seat at the table in most German companies. They're actually on the board of directors, mm-hmm. and they can understand what the company's challenges are and uh, adapt uh, uh, labor's um, demands to those challenges. Um, this happened back in the early 90s when the just after unification in Germany, um, Germany had a uh, deep uh, a recession. Um, uh, and uh, they were tightening their belts, and the problem was, uh, they basically went to labor and said, "We've got to reignite our manufacturing." They were actually, I think, actually running some trade deficits then, mm-hmm. and labor and and the government and the manufacturers agreed. The whole economy tried to keep wage uh, increases to a minimum in order to make uh, their economy uh, competitive again. So, you know, there is a, certainly a, um, a, a willingness to work together uh, between labor and, and management that you don't often find in the U.S. Yeah. Okay. John Idsty, correspondent and host with NPR, who covers the economy. Thanks very much for being here on Detroit Today. You're very welcome, Stephen. My pleasure. Up next, we're going to talk with a state capital reporter about what we're doing here in Michigan to promote vocational training and the skilled trades to help bolster manufacturing. Stay with us and stay with us on the phones. 313-577-1019 is the number. We'll be right back on Detroit Today. Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We've been talking about manufacturing and skilled trades and how we approach making things here 
in America compared to other places in the world. This has been a major goal of Governor Rick Snyder since he took office in 2011, and one of the few goals that he has yet to meet as he enters his final year in office. How are we doing here in Michigan with skilled trades and vocational training? What can we do as a state to encourage people to go into the trades and bolster our manufacturing sector in Michigan? Joining us now to talk about that state focus is Lindsay Van Hall, Capital Reporter for Bridge Magazine. Lindsay, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Let's start with that assessment uh, of what we've seen over the last uh, six, seven years as uh, as uh, Rick Snyder has been governor, this was a focus uh, that he uh, brought up during the, the, the campaigns, both campaigns. Have we made progress on vocational training and uh, skill skill development? There's certainly been progress. I think, you know, it remains a, a big challenge. You, one of the things you hear anecdotally from companies still is, you know, we, we're having a difficulty finding enough talented, skilled, qualified workers. And, you know, you think back to, you know, a decade ago with the recession and just how, how deeply manufacturing and, and construction were, were hit. You know, you've seen job gains come back. You've seen demand come back. Um, but at the same time, you have this, this other dynamic of, you know, an aging demographic and, and more workers nearing retirement. And companies are finding that you know that pipeline to replace people as they're as they're aging uh, just isn't just isn't there, and so that becomes a challenge then to to say how do we find more people um, interested in trades? How do we find people who know that this is a career option and that they don't always have to go to you know a four year school and 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 try to pursue the the college route? That you know there are these jobs here that are high paying, high skilled that require. Um, you know, less schooling and, and more specialized training and, you know, can provide a decent living. And so I think that's where the administration has really put its focus the last, you know, the last several years is trying to, A, just in, increase the, the profile, um, but also try to really um, boost that pipeline so that companies are able to have that pipeline of workers is more more of their employees near retirement. Right, right. Um, uh, let's talk about uh, the 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 role that the legislature has played uh, in this over the last uh, six or seven years. Uh, how are we How are we trying to, I guess, shift the focus? And some of it is about shifting the focus um, at the K twelve level. I feel like, but 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 also then. Uh, providing opportunity for people who are past the K-12 level um, uh, and, and need retraining or, mm-hmm. or, or, or help finding new work. Right. You know, some of this starts at, at the administration um, and kind of, you know, some of, the, some of the efforts that they have done through uh, forming the Career Pathways Alliance, which is roughly 100 members now, different school districts, ISDs, employers, chambers of commerce, that are coming together and sort of recognizing, you know, we need to do something here. We were, you know, calling for things like more career exposure in, in elementary, middle, and high school, more career planning and counseling, um, flexibility in the curriculum to teach, you know, to teach carpentry along with geometry or allow computer science as a foreign language and, and those sorts of things. And so in the legislature now, actually, the House recently passed a package of bills that would that would do um, some of those things, looking at, at kind of the career tech model, um, looking at ways to find more people from the private sector maybe to come in and teach uh, career tech classrooms. So that's mm-hmm. one of the challenges that, that, that the state is finding now. Um, I think anecdotally something like 
uh, 50 or so classes across the state that the, that the state's aware of that haven't been able to be offered because there's no qualified teacher in the classroom. They wow. can't find somebody with industry knowledge who can also come in and teach. And so the package of bills that, that is uh, over in the Senate right now um, would essentially allow uh, people to come in from, from industry uh, to be able to teach vocational classrooms. And, and there'd be uh, ways to waive or extend the requirement to get teaching credentials they'd be able to allow teachers to count, um, you know, time spent either externships or, or spent with local employers to count toward their professional development credits. Um, you know, there, there'd be curriculum uh, themes for each, for each grade level that kind of focus on career exploration and, right. and those sorts of things to try to get more people um, into the classrooms that can then help train more students to take on those careers. Yeah. Okay, Lindsay Van Hulley, Capital Reporter for Bridge Magazine. Thanks very much for being here with us on Detroit Today. Thank you very much. All right. That's going to do it for me today. I will be back tomorrow. I hope you will, too. Detroit Today is produced by Laura Weber Davis and Jake Neer. Our program director is Joan Isabella. Our technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. And our associate producers are Aaron Allen and Gus Navarro. Detroit Today's theme song was composed by WDET's Sam Bobian. This is WDET, Detroit's public radio station, community service of Wayne State University. We'll see you tomorrow.